Good evening, listeners. It's November 12th, 2017, and you're tuned in to 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It is currently just after 7 p.m., and on a Sunday, that can mean only one thing. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Kristen Finch. And I'm Harrison Steerwalt. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these graduate students each week. If you're a graduate student at OSU and you're interested in coming on the show, or you just want to find out more about all the awesome things going on along Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration, where you can find out all about our up-and-coming guests and links to our Twitter and Facebook pages. Inspiration dissemination is recorded live. Should they occur, any opinions expressed on the show are those of the hosts and their guests and do not necessarily represent Oregon State University or the station. Tonight we're joined by Evan Hilberg from the College of Public Health and Human Sciences. Evan, hello. Hello. Welcome to the booth. Oh, say that again. Evan, hello. <laughs> hello. And welcome to the booth. And tell us who your PI is, first of all. Yeah, so thanks for having me. Um, I'm a fourth-year graduate student um, in the College of Public Health and Human Sciences, and I work with Dr. Kathy Gunter and Dr. John Shuna. And that's in the Department of Kinesiology? That's correct. In my concentrations, physical activity and public health. Very cool. All right. Yeah, tell us a little bit about your project then. Yeah, so I've been working on the Grow Healthy Kids and Community Project the last several years. Grow stands for Generating Rural Options for Weight, Healthy Kids and Community. So it's a five-year USDA grant focused on um, really understanding the obesogenic environment in rural uh, communities and how that affects children, their physical activity, their weight status, and their overall health. That's interesting. So why do you look at a rural community specifically instead of maybe an urban community? Uh, There's some key differences between rural and urban and rural environments. Um, The infrastructure is different oftentimes in rural environments. the infrastructure allows for ease of access to physical activity opportunities or healthy eating opportunities that may be different um, compared to urban counterparts. And even within rural communities, there's oftentimes a large gap in terms of resources and availability. Right. And so how are you how are you looking at the urban communities? What specific tools are you using? Um, so. In the rural communities, we uh, are looking at really uh, three different levels, the community level, the school level, and then the family level, and seeing how these different sort of tiers of the environment are influencing children's ability to be physically active, but also uh, maintain healthy eating habits and uh, have academic success as well. So really these three primary tiers of community, what um, resources are available, how the kids are accessing them, what's going on in the school environment, and then what's happening at home um, within the family environment. So how, what is the specific focus for you, and how are you kind of diving into that and learning more about what, how the rural community can be different than the urban community? Yeah, so my focus has really been on the school environment and really focusing on the physical activity aspect. Um, all this plays in together with healthy eating and nutrition messaging, but really my focus is on physical activity. And so um, a couple of the big projects I'm interested in are when and how kids are active in the school environment. So uh, which opportunities they're taking advantage of, recess, uh, physical education, or unstructured physical activity. Um, Are kids using these opportunities? Are they not? And then looking at some of the reasons why they may not be using those. 
and then really trying to understand how to maximize the physical activity opportunities for these children uh, during the school day. And so what about it being having physical activity during the school day can be beneficial or especially important for rural children? Um, there's lots of benefits. Um, there's the obvious health benefits, cardiometabolic benefits of being physically active. But we also know that children in schools, when they're active, they typically achieve better academic um, goals. They uh, do better in classes. They have higher grades. Um, they're more attentive during class. Um, so they're by moving a little bit more each class period or having recess or physical ed- education throughout the day. They stay more attentive during the classroom, which leads to less disruptions and overall better learning environments for all children. And some of the rural school children as well uh, are more, most of their day is committed to transportation to and from school, right? So that's one difference with urban communities. Can you explain that a little bit more? Yeah, so a lot of the rural children will bus anywhere from 30 minutes to two hours um, one way to school. And so depending on where they're at on the bus route and where they are, um, in location and proximity to the school will dictate how much they have to travel by bus. And a lot of these children take the bus because of their um, residence of living is typically further away from the school. And so they spend an hour to two hours busing in the morning and then spend their full day at school and then bus home for an hour or two. And by the time the family gets home and the children get home, everyone's tired, want to eat dinner, relax, and then it's time to go to bed. So if they're not accruing their physical activity at school, Um, These children oftentimes don't uh, accrue enough physical activity uh, in the first place. So the school environment becomes even more important for those children that are um, being bused to school and have these long commutes. And I imagine being in the rural community, there might not necessarily be easy access to like uh, playgrounds or uh, sporting events where you can have a group of uh, neighborhood kids getting together to play sports outside or something. Yeah, that's, that's what we see oftentimes. And some rural communities are very well established. They have very nice infrastructure, but many of them do not. And so these organized youth sports teams, um, again, if they're going to uh, participate in those, it's maybe an hour each way to go play uh, t-ball or flag football or basketball. And so these opportunities may be available, but they're, um, the cost can be prohibitive, but also the travel time and the location um, and the ability for them to be transported to these events um, are also significant barriers that and disallow some children to participate in physical activity outside of the school environment. Right. How are you then measuring uh, physical activity in the school environment, and how are you determining if these rural school children, school children are getting the required amount of physical activity? Um, so there's the over the last three or four years, we've measured um, children's weight status. So we went in and measured their height and weight um, to assess their BMI, body mass index. And also at the same time, we... Um, attached pedometers to the children um, they wore it around their waist. And so we've done this twice a year over the last three to four years. Uh, And so we use the pedometer data and the BMI data to really track the overall population um, health in terms of weight status, but also their activity through the pedometer data. Um, And we also have done some smaller um, subsections of data using accelerometers also, which allow us to get higher resolution data on the activity patterns throughout the school day. Very cool. So could you could you provide um, kind of a, a little more detailed dip description of what BMI is, a pedometer and accelerometer, and how you would use those to better give you information to find out more about these rural children? Mm-hmm. So uh, body mass index is a commonly used metric um, to assess the overall health of children, but also adults. Uh, and children, it's slightly different because they're on a, a growth curve. And so... Um, 
we look at percentiles and z-scores and the change over time compared to adults, which are very um, rigid classifications of BMI categories. So it's slightly different in children, but it's measured the same way. We measure their height and weight, and it's a ratio of the two. Um, and it's not a perfect outcome, but it does track very well with a lot of um, health outcomes for in both children and adults. And so it's easy to measure, it's inexpensive, um, and it does associate pretty well with some of the um, important health outcomes that we look at in children. And so that's uh, our main outcome is BMI and then uh, assessing physical activity. There's many different ways to do it. Um, oftentimes people use surveys or self-report, ask children or their parents as a proxy how active their child is. Um, but the pedometers and accelerometers really allow us to narrow down and get an objective measurement of their physical activity. So it eliminates any sort of recall bias of what the child did that day or that week. Um, but also gives us this general idea of how active the child is being. And with accelerometers, we can you know, look down to the second of when that child was accruing physical activity. You know, If it was during class, if it was during PE, if it was during um, lunch or uh, any other time during the day, we can really match that with the child's schedule at school and see what's happening and when it's happening. So for the BMI measurements over this uh, long uh, or this uh, longer amount of time that you're following these children, uh, what kind of factors could be influencing someone's physical activity or a child's physical activity? Yeah, so in the, in the school environment, a lot of it comes down to the opportunities or the policies that are in, in place at each school. So if a uh, school administrator values physical activity and mandates that they get X amount of minutes per week in physical education or they're uh, mandated to have two recesses per day, um, those play heavily into um, how often the children are able to be active. And so a lot of it comes down to policy and administrative support for these opportunities. Um, but then it comes back to resources really at the end of the day, um, both um, social resources, so the ability for PE teachers to be present or training other staff at the school to lead activities, um, but also then physical resources like playgrounds, safe environments, um, classroom toolkits for physical activity or what it, whatever it might be. So resources and then policy and administrative support, I think, are the two two large factors in terms of how children are active in school environments. And so when you're looking at these uh, children, do you see a difference in uh, activity between the different ages? And is there like different times a day or doing different activities? Do you see a difference there? So generally we see that, that boys are more active than girls um, in any sort of data set you look at with child's um, physical activity, but also that younger kids are more active than older kids. So we see typically see a decrease in total activity level as children age, both in elementary school, but also middle school and high school, we see that decline in physical activity levels. Um, and this, you know, there's different factors at play there, um, like school schedules, uh, academic testing, standards, um, just the overall expectations of students in terms of academic setting also rise. And so you're fitting that into the same amount of time in a school day as a kindergartner, first grader, who's really working on motor skill development and some of the basic learning uh, achievements that those kids are expected to have. And so as those expectations change, um, there becomes less and less time and support for physical activity opportunities. And so those two pieces of uh, data that you just spoke to, the BMI over the longer period of time, and then also like correlating the school day activities with the accelerometer and pedometer measurements, these two things are really gonna tell you then not only the baseline level of physical activity across these kids, but then if they're getting 
the physical activity recommended when they can. So when they have these opportunities, am I getting that right? Yeah. And so there's a lot of potential ways to look at this data. Um, and it's, we have about uh, anywhere from 12 to 1400 kids measured with full um, BMI data and uh, pedometer data. So we have this robust data set of children over a period of about three years. And following those same kids over time is going to allow us to really see uh, what changes. Most often this data is cross-sectional so that we may measure it in first graders, third graders, and fifth graders, but they're different kids at different times. Um, so we see some associations there, but with this longitudinal data of the same kids in the same schools over time, we'll re really be able to key in on, you know, does physical activity predict change in BMI over time or does it not? And maybe there's other factors that are more important in these young school children um, in terms of their weight status over time. And so um, by answering those questions, we'll, we'll get a good idea of what's happening in the school environment, which factors are most important, um, and how that might influence policy or changes in the school environment. And getting back to the some of the tools that you use, um, what's one of the major differences between uh, using a pedometer versus using an accelerometer? So why, why would you use both if they're both tracking activity? The big difference between those two is that with the accelerometers, we're measuring anywhere between 30 and 100 samples per second. Um, and those are time-stamped. And so we're able to really get this um, high-resolution data on when kids are active um, and the intensity of that activity compared to pedometers, which really just accrue over the day and just give us a total uh, amount of steps. They can also tell us intensity um, depending on the device uh, based on step rate. So if you accrue 120 steps per minute or more, that's considered moderate intensity activity. Um, but a lot of pedometers don't even give you that data. They just give you full day. You know, this kid had 12,000 steps or 7,000 steps. Whereas an accelerometer, we can tell between 1201 and 1205, this kid had three minutes of moderate to vigorous physical activity based on intensity. Uh, so it really allows us to have higher resolution data and get this understanding of when, when the activity is accruing and not just how much. So the accelerometer really seems to give you much more data nonetheless, and also it's way more specific. Yeah, that's a, a big difference. The pedometers are nice because, again, they're much cheaper than an accelerometer. Um, and the kids, you know, they like to explore these things that you give them in this environment, in a research <laughs> setting. And so an accelerometer is nice in that sense because it doesn't have a screen or any sort of reading. It's just a, a plastic device. And we download the data on a computer compared mm -hmm. to a pedometer, um, which unless you tape it shut or cover the screen, which we typically do so they don't look at their steps and then sure. change their behavior based on what they see or accidentally reset it or, you know, whatever kids do when they have something on them, <laughs> but they don't usually have, you know, things, odd things can happen. So um, that's another benefit of accelerometers, um, but there's ways to, to maneuver around those um, barriers with pedometers, but uh, Very yeah. cool. And for these two devices as well, is there a kind of a standard for people who are using this so that data is transferable between studies or is that something that's still developing? Uh, there's really no standardization, which is one of the large problems in our physical activity research. And so with the self-report data, you get the same survey, you're asking the same questions, and however many you know types of bias may be present with that, at least it's consistent over time. And if I apply this survey to this group and this other group in Minnesota uses the same survey, we can compare those. Um, with an accelerometer pedometer, um, and specifically accelerometers, um, the data is uh, processed in a proprietary fashion by the manufacturers on the device. And so this very first step of 
um, processing the raw acceleration data. Most of the time we don't know how that's occurring. We can take pretty good guesses and do a little bit of reverse engineering and kind of see what's happening. But most of that's proprietary. And then beyond that, um, we get these activity counts from the device. And researchers across um, our discipline have been looking at different ways to classify physical activity, activity counts to then assess intensity of activity. So um, zero to a thousand activity counts per second might be moderate, thousand to five thousand might be um, vigorous. You know, there's different classification schemes. And so there's no standardization across our field and which one's used. There's a few that are used more often than others, but there, um, uh, there's research showing, you know, using the exact same data and processing it with, you know, 10 or different, 10 or 12 different um, classification schemes um, results in this vastly different um, results of how much physical activity or how many children are meeting guidelines. And so you get these huge discrepancies analyzing the exact same data, just using different thresholds for these activity counts. And so it's a problem that, um, you know, as these accelerometers, pedometers solve some problems with self-report, they then create this host of other problems that you know, balancing between the two, we're not sure you know which is worse or which is uh, more helpful, but it is an ongoing issue, and it's a relatively new issue in the field. Um, accelerometers have been around since the late 70s or 80s, but mostly used in sleep research, and it wasn't really until the late 90s or early 2000s that they were used in physical activity research to assess children and adults' physical activity. And so it's a relatively new field, and then this idea of processing and gathering data has really just exploded with the advent of um, new technology and new software and also the capacity to host data. Because um, as you mentioned, you get a lot of data points. And for a national surveillance system like NHANES, um, collecting data on five to 6,000 adults, you end up with terabytes and terabytes of data. And then understanding how to host this and who has access to it, and then how to analyze that data are current issues in physical activity research. And so is what's the reason that we the in research they use so many different devices i mean is there is it because some are more expensive than others or why are there so many differences when you could use the same one and compare data data between different sets that's a great question i don't think there's a, a simple or even a good answer to i think part of it is driven by the the business side of the world where mm -hmm. manufacturers want to create new devices they want to get into the market um the price point i mean a lot of them are pretty similar and if you're looking at a large scale research it's a pretty trivial difference in terms of you know your budget sure. for a large research project and so it's a great question and even devices within the same brand if if, if it's a newer model you know, that changes things also so mm -hmm. there's different firmware different software and so even within the same brand it's really hard to compare data from you know 2000 to 2010 because of these changes in software or hardware um, even if they're the same you know manufacturer so sure. um, it's something that i I think people are working towards a standardized way or at least a, a common way to collect this large scale research so we can compare over time because that's really the goal is to see if our mm -hmm. policies, programs um, are affecting change over the long term. Um, so yeah, it's there's no real good answer to it, but it's uh, it's something that people are, are curious about and mm -hmm. looking, looking into. I want to remind the listeners that you are tuned in to 88.7 KBVR Corvallis, and this is Inspiration Dissemination, where we talk to graduate students about their research and personal journeys to graduate school. Right now, we're talking to Evan Hilberg from the College of Public Health and Human Sciences, Department of Kinesiology. Evan, could you remind the listeners just a little bit broadly about what your project is, is looking at? Yeah, so our project is looking at really the rural environment, but how kids are active and how that affects um, 
their weight status over time. And so really looking at these health outcomes and how physical activity, but also the community, the school, and the family environments influence um, their weight change over time. And so I want to go back. So before the GROW project that you're involved with now, um, you went to college and you did all these things that have led you up to this point. And kind of how did you get started in exercise science? Yeah, so I, I was an athlete in high school and I played football and baseball. Um, and so I wanted to pursue baseball in college. And so my exploration of an undergraduate school was really focused on uh, baseball, finding a program that fits for me, but also finding a good education. And so someone had recommended Linfield College. Um, so I looked into it and they had a great baseball program, Division three program that was successful over a long period of time. And so the baseball side fit really well for me. Uh, and then, you know, explored a little bit more on the, the education side. And going in, I enjoyed high, uh, health classes and science classes in high school um, and found that I preferred those over, over different subjects. And so exercise science was sort of an immediate fit for me going into college and not really knowing what was what was there. And Linfield's a small liberal arts college, so limited options compared to a university like Oregon State, which has uh, a larger breadth of uh, majors and programs to enter. And so I uh, joined the exercise science program partially because it made sense as an athlete and I was <laughs> interested in you know fitness and performance and um, also because I was ignorant of what else goes on in the world for, for the most part. Yeah. And so... Were you always interested in research or is that something that kind of developed as you went through your undergraduate career? I wouldn't say that was, that was a sort of a later interest of mine. Okay. Um, when my advisor, Janet Peterson, uh, was really engaging in the classroom and really engaged in the community and um, brought me on as a research assistant um, on some small projects. And so that's really where my a, where I found out what your research was. Mm -hmm. um, in high school, you don't really get a lot of that. Um, so I didn't really know what that meant. I mean, you hear the word research and you're not really sure what it means. And then, um, you know, she was very engaged with her students in it, and that's possible at a small school like Linfield where the class sizes are, you know, 10 to 20. And senior year, you're in a class with five to 10 and you work with the same faculty year after year. And um, so she was one that really brought, brought me onto research and showed me you know, how you can use research to benefit others and whether that's in your community, at your school or a larger public health domain. Um, she was really the one that inspired me to, to pursue research and encouraged me to go to graduate school um, for the first time with one of her colleagues that she'd worked with um, over a number of years. And so um, my experiences as a junior and senior working on research projects with Janet and then um, her encouraging me to go to graduate school is really where my uh, interest in research came from. And so for graduate school, you were working then with her colleague. And who was that and where, where was uh, your first master's? Yeah, so I went to Eastern Washington University up in uh, Eastern Washington in Cheney, uh, <laughs> uh, near Spokane, about 15 miles outside of Spokane, um, with Dr. Wendy Repovich. Uh, and Janet actually served on my master's committee um, at that university also. Mm. Um, so it was really good to be able to continue working with her in a research capacity. Um, but... My first year there, I also did a term of service with AmeriCorps, which was really my first dive into community and public health. And so I was able to take my courses at night and then worked full time through AmeriCorps on a community health project in that in that uh, city of Cheney, Washington. And so what was your what was your project that you worked on during your master's? Uh, my research project was on looking at C-reactive protein and its relationship to the metabolic syndrome uh, 
So we sampled about 100 people and um, took blood, uh, both for C-reactive protein, which is an inflammatory marker in the blood, and then looked at metabolic syndrome, which is a collections of a uh, collection of syndromes, uh, high cholesterol, high blood pressure, um, glucose, and mm-hmm. um, it's a series of five different uh, outcomes. So. And so that's that's a big difference from the community uh, involvement that you had been getting into. Is that um, is that in your master's program when you really working with AmeriCorps really when you got interested in community health and kind of decided to sh- switch that way? Yeah, that's that's really where it took off. Uh, again, Janet at Linfield, she was very engaged with her community and encouraged us to participate in these service learning opportunities where we either used our research or our knowledge of exercise science um, to benefit the community. So we would hold wellness fairs um, annually and we'd have weekly blood pressure clinics so people could come by and get their blood pressure taken um, by students. Uh, we'd host different sorts of events um, that were really centered around community engagement um, and using our, our knowledge and expertise as exercise scientists to then benefit others. So that was sort of my initial dive. And then the AmeriCorps Terminal Service really was applying that to a large, mm. larger scale. Cheney mm-hmm. is a relatively small rural town, but um, applying that across you know school districts and public health programs and university settings and city um, uh, city administration, working across these different groups was was really eye-opening and really helped me understand, you know, where I might apply this knowledge of exercise science into, you know, a career or something um, that would then lead to uh, involvement in the community in the future. That's really cool to be able to uh, apply what you learn in school and what you may do in research that's so focused and take it and just expand it to a community level and really try to help the community as a whole rather than just focusing on something that's really small. So that's really cool. Yeah, it sounds like you were really expanding your wheelhouse at that time. So now you've, you're getting your experience in the community and then you're doing a little bit of uh, physiology, human physiology ex- experiments with, the, with your master's project. So did that kind of then lead you or, or um, guide you into Oregon State for your next degree that you're working on now? Yeah, so uh, that experience really is what I, I found I loved to do and enjoyed being out in the community. And so... I went back to Linfield and taught anatomy and physiology labs uh, for a year between applying to Oregon State. Um, and at that time, I went to our, our premier conference in our field is American College of Sports Medicine. And at that time, I met Kathy Gunter. Actually, in the poster session, she was presenting on uh, something unrelated to GROW, but we got to talking about um, her applying for this, this large grant that was at that time um, had not been funded, but she had applied for it and was explaining what GROW was and the goals of it and sort of some of the um, semantics of what was going on with the grant. And so it was at that time that I really um, found out about uh, what was happening here at Oregon State. And at the time, there was another faculty member here that was doing a lot of research with uh, children and accelerometers, um, but he had since moved on. Um, And so then Kathy became the primary uh, faculty here in physical activity and public health and was um, by the time I had applied, she had received the, the GROW grant. And so I volunteered for a summer prior to enrolling on her project um, and then really enjoyed it, enjoyed the community aspects and working with people in the field. Um, and so then I applied to the university for um, the kinesiology program. And then she uh, ended up being my primary advisor and then uh, began working with John Shuna once he arrived at Oregon State as well. So a good blend of physical activity and public health, but also working with some of the device stuff uh, with John. That's very cool. And uh, I believe you mentioned you also did an MPH here when you when you decided to come here. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. Yeah. So I um, 
after I applied and enrolled in the kinesiology program, um, Kathy mentioned that um, the public health department offered degrees in biostatistics and epidemiology and other public health domains. And so she encouraged me to um, look into that option as a way to supplement really my public health training and background. Um, we had a couple of classes that we were taking within kinesiology that were ap um, applicable to that, but really the public health training um, comes from the public health department. And so getting the master's in public health um, really supplemented my training and experience um, and background information within the domain of public health, which is much different than um, the information that we get in a traditional kinesiology program. Mm -hmm. And so I decided to focus on uh, biostatistics uh, because I enjoy doing research um, and also the methods and, and being able to, to help on a variety of different projects and not being um, focused on, in, on one exact um, domain or project within exercise science. I could mm -hmm. kind of expand, work on different projects and you know, kind of see what was out there. And so after you've now, you've now ra wrapped up that master's in public health in biostatistics, did that uh, also influence your, the other thing that you're doing concurrently, which is your full-time job with uh, Cambria Health Solutions? Yeah, so that, that degree really opened up a lot of doors. Um, and so if I, if I look back, it was, it was a really good decision for me, both um, in terms of my education and my doctoral program, but also career-wise. So having the degree in statistics um, is really beneficial because it, statistics applies across disciplines. And so whether you're looking at forestry or biology or chemistry or some other discipline, a lot of the methods are the same. Uh, the content is obviously different, but these methods can be applied across these disciplines. And that was interesting to me to be able to apply these skills, figure out how they would apply in a different domain, but then you know, going back and using these analytic skills. And so um, I wasn't looking for a job, but uh, one came up. And the opportunity arose, and I talked to my advisors, and they were both supportive of pursuing that opportunity. And that degree in biostatistics really um, is what allowed me to even be qualified or, uh, for that position. And then I uh, went through the application this May and then got hired at the beginning of June. So I've been in that role for about five months now um, doing medical policy research. Right. So you're a medical policy research analyst for Cambria Health Solutions. Do you have just like a brief description of what that is, or can you even tell us? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's sort of a nebulous thing, and I didn't know stuff like this existed, really, and that goes back to, you know, being able to expand your horizons and really look at what's outside of your specific domain, and so medical policy research, um, so health insurance companies have medical policy that apply to their members, and so what we do is really research these different surgeries or medical equipment or um, genetic testing, these different things, whatever it is that comes up in, in the world of medicine. We research them, look at their safety, their efficacy, um, if there's uh, less costly alternatives that have the same outcomes, um, looking at clinical practice guidelines to see what's recommended by societies or organizations that specialize in, let's say, orthopedic surgery. We'll go look into that research and see if this, you know, this specific surgery and then if there are certain criteria that people need to have met to then be qualified for this or have it be medically necessary. And so that's sort of the general idea is that, you know, we get these different uh, requests and these different surgeries, techniques, whatever it is, um, and then do the research, scientific research and go basically do systematic reviews on, you know, whatever it is that comes across our, mm -hmm. our desk. So you're kind of help. So whenever uh, maybe a new or a client for this insurance needs this procedure that maybe the insurance isn't familiar with, they don't know if they're going to cover that or not. You would be the person behind the curtain, kind of doing the research to see if that is a procedure that is recommended and if it should be covered or not. 
Yeah, so we, we do the research. We don't make um, determinations necessarily. Our research is used by you know nurse reviewers or doctors to make determinations, but we get a, a claim and then we do the research. So then it applies to you know any claim that comes in for the surgery. So it may be for one patient in the first place, but then we you know, do our research so it applies across any patient or any claim that comes in. So we don't have to keep doing the same thing. So we, we create this broad criteria and this um, broad policy to then cover everything within that particular surgery or whatever. There's so many different things that come across <laughs> right. that you really don't, you know, unless you, you know, you're in the medical world or yeah. insurance world that you don't know that this stuff goes on. So it's been really interesting and getting to apply my research skills in a different way has been also really engaging and really interesting. Yeah. It seems like that would make you, I mean, that would just really strengthen your skills as a researcher to be able to, to be able to work in that aspect and work in your degree in biostatistics. And so now I want to take a step back and ask you, what do you think is going to, what do you think you're going to do once you finish up with your uh, doctorate in kinesiology? You think you'll continue on with this full-time job or will you maybe go in and start your own research or what do you think is next? Something I've been thinking about quite a bit. And again, this job wasn't something I was looking for. Mm-hmm. And so I was at really good kind of a, a breaking point in my doctoral program in that I'd finished all my coursework and so it just, you know, it just happened and it was a really good opportunity um, and I had the support from my advisors. So that was great. Um, it's something I'm really enjoying at this point. The job is interesting. I get, I'm learning a ton every day. It's, a di- you know, every single thing we do is different from minute to minute pretty much. And so we never see the same thing twice. And that's sort of what I really enjoy. And that's going back to, you know, my research interest in general is to you know, look at different um, fields, different disciplines, you know, having the statistics degree, again, I could work on a nutrition project or a kinesiology project or something in biology. And so this idea of always being stimulated with different or new ideas is something that I found out that works for me personally. um, And I enjoy that sort of environment. And so this job's been really um, engaging in that way. And so I think I'll pursue it and see how it pans out. Um, but I also really enjoyed teaching and doing research in academic setting. And so um, when I finish the, the program, it will be difficult um, to assess kind of what my options are at that point. Mm-hmm. But it's hard for me to say which which I prefer more. I'm not against going back in academia. I find it in a, that environment's also really engaging and really fun working with students. And um, being able to do community-based research is also something I really enjoy. And so I kind of have to see, see what happens um, when the time comes. But Sure. Well, you've got some time to figure it out, I think. Yeah. (laughs) Right. So, Evan, best of luck to you with finishing up your degree and continuing with your job. Uh, We're coming to the end of our time, and we have two traditions that we have to clean up before we can let you go. So, tradition one is to ask you for your advice to someone who, well, you can tell us who you're giving advice to and what it is for. Uh, Sure. I I think general advice to to graduate students or even undergraduate students in general would be to... um, Really understand how the skills that you're picking up in your studies are um, transferable across um, different jobs or different careers and not necessarily be you know, pigeonholed into one track. And oftentimes we have goals um, going through high school or even undergraduate. And even in graduate school, we, we create these goals and these um, achievements that we want to, to get to. And I think it's important to, to really allow yourself to see outside of that and really understand what's happening in the periphery. Um, and allow that to happen. And not necessarily that you'll go branch off and pursue something different, but at least entertaining those ideas and that 
the skills you're picking up in graduate school really are transferable into other careers or other positions or other fields even in that you know, if I study exercise science, my whole career doesn't have to be in exercise science. And if that's something you're passionate about and that you've explored other options and you still find that that's what's for you, then that's great. But I think at least entertaining and being willing to accept you know, this ability to pivot from one career path into another that's related, um, but really having to understand how your skills um, and the knowledge that you're picking up through your studies are you know, transferable and not you're not stuck in one spot. You're not stuck with this degree for the rest of your life and that if it doesn't work for you in three years or if it's not working for you now, find a way to pivot and use that, you know, the skills and training you have in graduate school um, to find something else that you're, you're passionate about doing. And that is some excellent advice, something that I need to remind myself every <laughs> once in a while. Uh, so our second tradition that we have is for you to tell us a song you would like for us to play and why you chose that song. Yeah, so this, the song I chose today is uh, Free Will by Rush. Um, I was able to see them in concert just a couple of years ago. Um, and actually, I saw Janet Peterson at that concert um, <laughs> up in Portland. So um, kind of connection to, to school there. But it really, I think Free Will um, and the song really centers around choice and taking responsibility for that choice. And whether it's not making a choice um, to continue on or to change your career, to change your job, or to... Um, you know, change the way you think about something that we're always responsible for our choices, um, good or bad. And then using that information from those choices to then, you know, create this new path or this, um, this new focus on whatever it is you're doing. And so I think the song really centers around, um, choice and taking mm -hmm. responsibility for that choice, which I think is important no matter what, um, you're talking about in life. But, um, that's kind of the, the philosophical reason I chose it, but also it has connections to um, my days at Linfield with Janet, and um, it's also just it's good rock music and good uh, song, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun listening to to Rush play with just their their three artists and how much sound and awesome noise they make. So, mm -hmm. well, Evan, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us, and uh, and uh, best of luck on your degree. Evan is from the College of Public Health and Human Sciences. This is Inspiration Dissemination. We're on every Sunday at 7 p.m. We'll be on with a different graduate school, a different graduate student next week. And this is Free Will by Rush, and it's a request of Evan. You heard it on KBVR Corvallis, over and out.